Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Guy Marzarati, in for Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, we're looking ahead to the November ballot and the issues going before California voters. But first, Inland Empire Congressman Pete Aguilar is one of three California Democrats on the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. And he joins us to talk about this week's explosive hearing. Congressman Aguilar is a member of the House Committee investigating January 6th, of course. He's also a rising star in the Democratic Party. Congressman Aguilar joins us from Washington, D.C. Congressman, welcome to Political Breakdown. Good to have you. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Let me begin by uh, asking about uh, this subpoena that the committee has issued for Trump's White House lawyer, Pat Cipollone. Uh, What does the committee want to hear from him about? Well, we think that Mr. Sabloni has uh, information that is helpful to the investigation. That's truly the only barometer uh, that we are looking at. Um, but uh, clearly the witness that we had this week, Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, indicated that Mr. Sabloni uh, had conversations with other White House uh, aides that could be helpful and, and relevant. So uh, that's what we are seeking to talk with him about. We've had an informal conversation with him uh, previously, uh, and we'd like uh, to have a more formal conversation. Cassidy Hutchison's testimony, it's been the most talked about hearing replayed on TV all throughout this week. What did that testimony change for you, if anything, about how you feel about the possibility of former President Trump being prosecuted? Well, what we've sought to do is to tell the full and complete story about January 6th. But clearly her testimony paints a a damaging image of the former president and his closest allies failing to act to prevent violence despite the warnings uh, that they received. Uh, We felt that that was uh, important. We felt it was important for the public uh, to have uh, a glimpse into what was going on uh, in the White House at that time. Uh, but clearly, uh, what she indicated was they knew that there would be violence days, even days before January 6th. Uh, they didn't do anything. And even as violence was erupting on the 6th, um, uh, the calls uh, to do more uh, largely went unanswered. What for you is the threshold of having uh, the Department of Justice bring charges against President Trump. I mean, clearly he was seemingly at the center of a violent attempt to overthrow uh, or to throw out an election that was free and fair. If that isn't, you know, grounds for a prosecution, what is? Well, that's a question for the Department of Justice. You know, our, our job, our responsibility, our mandate um, is to tell the full and complete story. 
uh, to tell the truth, to find out what happened on the 6th. But what were the causes that led up uh, to that violence uh, on the 6th? Uh, what were the roles that extremist groups played in, uh, in supporting those efforts, um, you know, building up uh, in late December? Uh, the role uh, also, you know, people close to the president supporting these fake electors, uh, these alternate slates of electors. Um, but at its core, guys, what's important to know is each and every time the president lost, he, he lost over 60 legal cases. Um, you know, these state electors were, were failed to be recognized uh, in their own home states. All of those doors kept closing and the pressure kept building because he genuinely wanted to stop a peaceful transfer of power. And so as each door closed uh, and we became closer to January 6th, that became the last and final opportunity. And uh, clearly, uh, given what we know now, the president pointing at the Capitol, the president telling his supporters, fight like hell, um, you know, his, his own internal pressure uh, to the vice president, calling him names, you know, all of that was meant. Um, to thwart a peaceful transfer of power and to even up until that day, you know, I genuinely feel that the president woke up on the 6th feeling that he could still hold on to power. I'm curious, Congressman, as you've prepared for your work on this committee, who are you thinking of as your audience? You know, I I think that's an important question um, because, you know, I I feel that the easy answer is to say, you know, people who support what what we're going to do. Um, and, and believe me, there are people who support us and, and you're going to have listeners who support us. And, and I, we greatly appreciate the interest. Uh, there's also going to be a segment of the population who feels the election was stolen and that they're, whatever we say is not going to change their mind. You know, we need to set aside both of those audiences. We need to speak to uh, the folks in the middle who know that something bad happened. They know that the president probably didn't do what he needed to do, um, but they don't know all the details. And they're busy in their daily lives. They're taking their kids to school. Uh, they're working hard. Look, guys, I'm from the Inland Empire, and, and people are working harder. They're working longer. They're commuting longer um, to provide for their families. Uh, what we need to do is we need to speak to them. We need to talk with them about how important democracy is and how we're fighting to protect it. Um, but we need to do it in a way uh, that is uh, impactful uh, and, and clearly gets across our point. Liz Cheney, of course, is one of two Republicans who is on the committee, uh, and she has broken with her party uh, over this. She lost her leadership position, and she spoke last night at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, and she basically said to Republicans, look, you're going to have to choose between Trump and the Constitution. How surprised are you that Republicans like Kevin McCarthy have refused to distance themselves from Trump despite all this evidence, despite what happened on January 6th? It's it's sad. It, it's it's frightening, um, but it's also sad. It's a it's a sad realization of where we are and and where our politics are in this in this country. Um, but the fact that the the modern Republican Party um, wants to you know latch on to the former president, um, you know, at all expense uh, is is terrible, and it really comes down to just a lack of leadership. And, and you mentioned it, but Kevin McCarthy going down to Mar-a-Lago and kissing the ring, you know, of Donald Trump, you know, days after uh, the insurrection was was really the, the turning point. I mean, he wanted to be speaker. He knew that his best path to being speaker is to have the former president in his corner. Uh, and he was willing to, to mortgage everything uh, in order to to hold on to that. 
the hearing that you chaired uh, and led did actually focus on some ways in which Republican officials, specifically those working with Vice President Mike Pence, resisted some of the you know pressure campaigns on the part of the former president. How do you view Mike Pence's role in the aftermath of the election? I mean, do you see him as a hero in all of this? You know, I think he did his job on January 6th, and I think he should be commended for it. And as a partisan Democrat, as the vice chair of the House Democratic Caucus, I have no qualms about saying Mike Pence exercised his duties. Uh, he upheld the Constitution. Uh, he performed as the law and the Constitution tells him to. And in the, in, in, the, in the face of pressure that was coming from the president calling him names, uh, from uh, people around the, the president, uh, from a mob uh, that came within 40 feet of him, uh, he did his job through all of that. And, and we should be honest and tell that. Now, you know, Mike Pence also stood behind the former president for, for five plus years while they were supporting policies to separate, uh, you know, uh, families at the border and, and, and enact terrible, terrible policies. Uh, so I'm going to disagree on some policy. But on that day, he did his job. Well, speaking about disagreeing on some policy, I would imagine you and Liz Cheney probably disagree on 95 percent of very, you know, a wide range of policy issues. What, what is your impression of her? I know you're someone who's tried to build bridges during your time in Congress. What is your impression of her? She's impressive. She's powerful. She's a patriot uh, and she's an amazing colleague. Um, and, you know, we we spend a lot of time together. Uh, the nine of us members. Uh, we have we have a, a text thread. Um, we talk about our families. Uh, we congratulated Adam Kinzinger when uh, the birth of his baby. Uh, we tease each other. Um, we this is genuinely, folks, how Congress should work. You know where we can disagree on a lot of things, um, but I will also tell you this is the most functioning group of of members on both sides of the aisle I've been around. Uh, everybody is prepared. Everybody is dialed in. And I will tell you, I, I think you'd, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody more prepared uh, uh, than Liz Cheney on these on these issues. Well, I think that preparation, that cohesion has certainly come through visually in these hearings. I think it's fair to say these committee hearings look like no other House committee hearings we've seen in the past. Uh, Jamie Raskin called it the first congressional hearing of the 21st century. I'm wondering if you agree with that. And will this change how, you know, the House goes about its business beyond this? You know, I, I, it's really a tribute to Chairman Benny Thompson, uh, Vice Chair Liz Cheney, um, but also the support that the House Democratic Caucus and the Speaker herself have given to the committee. Uh, they have basically told us that, you know, they want us to succeed. And so that means, you know, we need to build, uh, you know, we need to build the multimedia we need to have competent, capable, top-notch staff. Uh, we have some of the top-notch staff that I've ever that I've ever met before. Uh, these are folks who are former assistant U.S. attorneys, uh, former U.S. attorneys, uh, nominated by both by presidents on both sides of the aisle. Uh, these are amazing folks, and we can only do it with the support um, financially of the House of Representatives and the support of a majority of our colleagues. And so that's what we have sought to do. But I, I agree with what my colleague said. I've said something similar uh, that, you know, we've learned from Watergate. We've learned from Iran-Contra. We've learned from the 9-11 commissions. We wanted to, to meet folks where they are. Uh, we want to do something that that is built for this time and this era. And that means, you know, two-hour hearings with some media presentations that they can watch uh, on social media. Uh, that's important. Right. I was just going to say, is this in part, maybe an acknowledgement that the way 
even more recent hearings were pursued. I'm thinking of, you know, the way the the last impeachment trial went, the long all day hearings, the testimony that maybe that wasn't breaking through with the public. It's just a realization that, you know, people are stretched thin with their time and, and we want to do everything we can. But we have to do things that, that can grab their attention, but can also hopefully live on social media. Um, and that they can click and they can watch for four minutes or five minutes. Uh, we felt that that was important. Uh, the multimedia team and the production team has done just that. And the team leaders have really guided that effort each and every uh, episode. You are at, I think, 43 years old. You just had a birthday. Uh, happy birthday to a fellow Gemini. Um, 43 years old, uh, also the highest ranking Latino member uh, of the Democratic caucus. Uh, what concerns you most about the way your party, the Democrats, are speaking to voters right now, especially uh, Hispanic Latino voters? We need to talk about quality of life issues. We need to talk about helping making, uh, help to make people's lives better. Uh, I think that's more important uh, in the Latino community than ever. But we also can't use a cookie cutter approach. We can't treat South Floridian Latinos uh, uh, like Southern California Latinos or South Texan Latinos. Um, we need to speak to, to the audience and really understand the communities in which we serve. Um, but I'll tell you broadly, look, the, the, the Latino dream is the American dream. It's, it's, it's clean water, better education, opportunity for our kids to succeed and have a better life. Uh, that's exactly what we, what we need to do. And those are the policies that Democrats stand for each and every way. So if we communicate that message, we're going to have success. Is there something in these hearings, these January 6th hearings, that you hope carries over into the midterm elections that you think maybe your party can uh, take advantage of in the months to come? It really isn't about partisan advantage. I mean, our, our, our job and, and responsibility is to tell the truth, but I think it's going to be pretty evident um, to the American public, uh, which individuals, um, not Democrats or Republicans, which individuals are going to support democracy, are going to protect our institutions, are going to make sure we stand for free and fair elections. Uh, it's pretty clear. Um, uh, where House Democrats stand. And it's pretty clear that only a small number of, of House Republicans uh, stand for those same principles. Congressman, we're going to let you go. But last question, I think I first interviewed you uh, in about 2010. You were the mayor of Redlands, California. We talked about having both worked for Gray Davis, I think, at one point in our lives. Uh, what have you taken to D.C. with you from your time on the city council as mayor of Redlands, California? Just the fact that people want solutions, you know, they, they, they want help. They, they really don't like a lot of division um, within, within their elected officials. Uh, they they want to send people to do a job. And so what, what's been most impactful about my time working for the state of California, uh, as well as you know, serving on the, in the city council, uh, is the fact that, you know, people just want our institutions to work. They want people to work together. They, they want us to deliver for them and, and, the, and to have success. And, and that's what I've sought to do, you know, each and every step along the way, uh, building coalitions, uh, supporting our communities, and, and always putting uh, the region, uh, the Inland Empire, and the state of California first. All right. Congressman Pete Aguilar, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Thanks, Congressman. Thanks so much, guys. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we'll be joined by political consultant Marva Diaz. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Guy Marzarati. And for the rest of the program, we're going to be joined by a veteran political consultant. Marva Diaz calls herself a lifelong student of politics. She spent a dozen years up in Sacramento, including a stint as chief of staff for the Assembly Democrats. She's worked on hundreds of campaigns, it's safe to say. And today she's an editor of the nonpartisan California Target book, which covers the nuts and bolts of politics, including redistricting and campaign finance. Marva Diaz, welcome to The Breakdown. Hey, Marva. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, as we are recording on Thursday afternoon, um, it looks like there's going to be just seven ballot measures, at least at the moment, uh, on the November ballot. There's uh, still a couple we're waiting to hear about. What's your take on, you know, why there are so few? We haven't seen this few in, in, I don't know, about uh, eight years. Well, that's a good question. Um, There was one that was qualified that just got pulled today because the legislature was able to come to an agreement between the two sides, negotiate agreements, pass um, a bill to address the concerns of the proponents, um, and the measure was then withdrawn. So, for in that example, we have a little bit less than than some because we've had some withdrawn specifically because of deals that have gone through by the legislature. And we should say uh, that is a result of a, of a law that uh, allows that to happen. That didn't used to be the case, right? Absolutely. It's a great law because, honestly, it's going to save so many people so much time and money if they can just do that process through the legislature um, and if they have that ability to do so. It's actually the second one this round. Um, if you remember a few weeks ago, the MICRA um, proposition was also negotiated through the legislature and also withdrawn. Um, so, you know, we had a few more out there that had been circulating for a while. Um, they qualified, but the legislature was able to step in and, and negotiate. And then in addition to that, um, there were some that were circulating and didn't quite qualify and they're pushing it for two more years. So things that we've seen on the streets, things that you may have signed in front of the target or the grocery store or what have you, you may see again in a couple of years. And you mentioned the deal that was struck today. This related to what could have been a really expensive ballot fight over single-use plastics. Um, there were some other deals, as you said, made under this provision that the legislature can still make deals and ultimately take things off the ballot. But why didn't that work in all cases? I guess, can you point to any through line as to what makes conditions maybe right for the legislature to work something out, as opposed to other deals that, you know, ballot measure you're working on regarding higher taxes on wealthier Californians to fund electric vehicles. Why don't deals work out in those cases? There is there any through line? You know, it's it's a good question and it's it's kind of a complicated answer because really it comes down to time 
there are, there's only so many minutes in a day and this, the legislators only have so much time to work on so many issues every year. Um, we were really, really lucky to have a budget surplus this year. So everyone thinks like, oh, well, the budget process will be really easy. Nobody has to fight over anything, but that's not entirely true because you have to put money aside for the future. You're trying to decide where you're using funds and things of that, of that sort. So um, there's only so many minutes in a day. And I think that when they can step in and do the right thing and negotiate an agreement, they do. But when it's not quite there yet, um, the other alternative is to go to the ballot. But in addition to just time, I mean, there's also you have to have a willingness on both sides. And maybe like in the case of this uh, single use plastics, maybe both sides realized that there was going to be like a, you know, cost so much money and maybe there was something in the middle. But in the end, I mean, the, the, the law that passed, the bills that passed, were, it's kind of a weaker version of what was going to be on the ballot in terms of recycling and banning things. Uh, so like, I, I guess, you know, in this case, uh, half a loaf or maybe two thirds of a loaf, the environmentalists were willing to settle for? Um, I think it's fair to say that there was good negotiations on both sides, right? Yeah, perhaps from some people's point of view, it wasn't as strong as the ballot measure. But the thing to remember is, once you circulate language for a ballot measure, and it, it goes in for signatures, that's it, you can't change it, there are no amendments. Um, and it's something that I get asked quite a bit, to be honest with you, like, can we just change this thing after it's qualified? No, that's it. Um, and I think that's really, really important to understand is that you, if you're working on a ballot measure campaign, you do a lot of research before you write it. You do research while you're writing it. You do research while it's in circulation. You do research all the way through. Um, but you, voter attitudes change, you know, inflation, gas prices, what have you, um, things that you may not have seen um, being uh, issues that may sway different types of voters and and cause other voters that you wouldn't expect to come out to the polls. You know, for example, Roe v. Wade, who knew, who knew two years ago that we would be having this fight this year, right? Um, some people suspected it, but nobody knew for sure. So I think what's important is that, yes, it, it, it is more complicated than just so many minutes in a day. And yes, it does include political will, but it's, it's really important to understand that um, it's always kind of a moving target. We are, we are political scientists, meaning that we study things, but that we just don't know what's going to come out of the woodwork at any given moment. Well, given all those issues that you just mentioned, as someone who's working on ballot measure campaigns, what's your kind of thousand foot view of what the electorate looks like or could look like statewide come this fall? You know, that's a million dollar question. Um, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of different efforts that I'm involved in and pollsters themselves all have differing opinions of things. Um, I do think it's uh, going to be a very interesting electorate in that we'll see people come out that we probably haven't seen before. I think issues like choice is going to make people that are younger and maybe not normally voters come out to the polls to make a, a statement. Um, I think also there's other issues on the ballot that may pull at people's wallets. You know, there's um, things that people uh, are really angry about right now. There's There are people that made a lot of money during the pandemic and other working families are struggling. You know, the, this their opportunity for the working families then to come out and say, hey, we actually want X 
this something that's offered in this ballot measure and we we want to make sure it's addressed appropriately um and we think that you know maybe other people should either pay for it or we should think that the government should step in or what have you but i think there's going to be a lot of people coming out to make a statement with their votes this year one of the measures we know will be on the ballot again has to do with kidney dialysis clinics voters have given thumbs down resoundingly twice in 2020 it lost 6337 and the union uh, that represents these workers is back why why <laughs> why do voters have to see this again i know it's you know we just have to say no or yes but you know yeah what what's going on you know, I've not been in the weeds on that one. Obviously, as a voter, I've seen it on my ballot a couple of times, and I can see that it's something that they're, the unions are just going to keep pushing until they can get some sort of um, resolution on their issue. Um, I think in, in their view, it's worth having the arguments because it's something that's not right in the world for them. And that's it's an opportunity for them to either go to the ballot or to have, you know, maybe the legislature eventually step in and, and negotiate something. Um, it's one of those issues that's very complicated behind the scenes as well. You know, people hear dialysis and you think it's a very straightforward issue, but there's a lot of moving parts here. Who works in the facilities? How, do, how are the facilities set up? Um, and so it's one of those things where on the surface, I think it can seem very simple. Um, but it's very difficult to get um, education to voters in a, in, a, in a needed way to understand all the, the complicated issues behind it. Well, you bring up a good point of ballot measures as kind of political tools in themselves, right? Think about the flavored tobacco referendum that's on the ballot this year. I mean, just by getting that on the ballot, the industry kind of have given itself a two-year lifeline, pausing the, the ban that was in place. Looking at the, you know, the other measures that are in front of us, what are you kind of seeing as ones that might dominate the political conversation or the airwaves uh, for the next few months? Um, I can tell you it's going to be gambling, gambling and gambling. <laughs> you can bet on it. <laughs> you oh, can man. bet on it. Um, those gambling initiatives are just going to use a lot of the airway time. Um, TV, radio, digital ads, you name it, they're already buying it all up. We're going to see their ads. In fact, we've already seen their ads. Most people um, probably listening to this have been seeing the ads for months and months. Um, there are two measures that the voters are going to see on the ballot. Um, one side says that the initiative does not conflict with the other. The other side says, yes, they do. So I think even after November, regardless, if they both pass, we're going to see the courts have to step in and, and make decisions as well. And just to say these two, one would, backed by tribal governments, would allow in-person gambling, the other by betting companies allowing mobile uh, wagering. It require in-person and not the other kind. Right. So you wouldn't be able to bet on your phone, yeah. So, uh, you know, what do, when, as you say, voters are going to be, they're all, we're already seeing ads, but we will be inundated with these ads on yes and no on both of these. Like, at what point do... Does it like have a diminishing impact and voters just say no, 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 <laughs> no to both? I think that's the clock above all of our heads in the business, right? You Again, it's the ticking clock is, is brutal when you, you have only so much time to get your message across. You have to educate voters as much as possible. Um, and what happens is when there's too many issues on the ballot, when things are too complicated, 
voters will go to the ba- go to the voting polls will they'll turn in their ballots and when they're when they don't understand something on the initiative side they vote no so it's really a battle on the campaign side to make sure that your issue is clear easy to understand concise so that when they go to vote they go oh this yes and this is all taking place in the context of top of the ticket races in California governor senate that Let's be honest, they're boring this year. So what does that do for the folks, funders in politics and the folks running campaigns? I mean, what does it mean to you to have those kind of top of the ticket races that might draw turnout in other years, maybe not getting as much attention? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I am. No one should ever tell Mr. Governor that he's boring. So let's start there. <laughs> we didn't um, say he was boring. <laughs> But yeah, uh, I think it it is difficult when there's not something driving people to go out in terms of the, you know, the governor's race or say the attorney general's race or something like that. That's, you know, a little bit more appealing to voters to go out and make a statement on their votes. I think because of that, these initiatives that are going to be on the ballot are really going to drive people's attitudes on why they're voting. And I really do think that this um, pro-choice Roe v. Wade initiative is going to turn out so many different people that we're just not expecting normally. All right. And of course, both sides, all sides of both the ballot measures and the candidates will be trying to get people to the polls. We'll see uh, what kind of success they have. The parties will be doing that as well. Marva Diaz, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. I'm Guy Marzarati. You can follow me on Twitter at Guy Marzarati. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Have a fun and safe July 4th weekend, everybody. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.